bringing order to the intersection of public, private, and civic. This is Infrastructure Momentum Makers. Welcome to Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada, the only software solution purpose-built to securely run complex and high-value infrastructure procurement. All your infrastructure procurement processes in one place, all in order. And join me, Vratna Amin, as I speak with the movers and shakers at the intersection of the public, private, and civic sectors about the latest breakthroughs and developments in the world of infrastructure. Today, I am joined by the Executive Director of the Transbay Joint Powers Authority, Adam Vandewater, to talk all about the complexities of making neighborhoods around infrastructure and delivering one of the largest transit infrastructure projects in the state of California. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rana. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Adam, I've known you a pretty long time now when you were in public policy school getting your master's degree at UC Berkeley. And I was going to get that degree, but then switched teams. But you've spent your career working in government and went to graduate school for it, first in Denver and now for a long time in California. What is it about the public sector that attracts you? I was thinking about this question a little bit, and I've always been fascinated with the allocation of scarce resources. My undergraduate degrees were in economics and environmental studies, both of which look at that question from different angles. And local government, and I did briefly do some state and federal government work as well, is really where you see the tangible impacts of those decisions. And you can make pretty substantial investments in how people live their daily lives, particularly as I've been focused for the last few years around infrastructure, how people get around, how they communicate, what defines that sense of community and the local governments that provide those resources. That's super interesting, Adam. I didn't know that. It's all about scarce resources or feeling that resources are scarce. Although often for taxpayers, it seems like there's plenty of resources. Didn't I just vote yes on another sales tax? I know I've heard that when it comes to funding government infrastructure. You worked as a project director for the city and county of San Francisco for nearly two decades, where you had to balance their needs or desires of the community to not pay more maybe or to pay for certain projects and then actually get those chosen, prioritized, implemented. How did you go about doing that? How did you have to innovate to do that in government? Whether there's enough resources or not, there's still the kind of allocation of where you spend your time and effort and energy and resources. One of the things I learned after a while, I started in public grant making in kind of small community projects and quickly got into public-private partnerships where you're leveraging the powers of the market economy to deliver the public benefits that you're looking to create in your community. And so that could be everything from building new arena for sports teams, which I did for the Golden State Warriors. And we tried to do with the America's Cup, which was a, both an event and initially a real estate deal, but ended up being more of an event than an infrastructure project. But also developers who come in, they want to make a market rate for housing, for office, for whatever the intended target use is. So how do you leverage that interest, investment, and amount of resources to create new public open space, new transit connections, new elements to a community that benefit the city, both financially and in terms of the infrastructure that they're looking to create. That is where I thought there was a lot more power to create more benefit than, say, 
allocating a general fund dollar from the city's government coffers or going to the voters for a tax measure or something, which is often also part of the equation. But you can only go to those wells so so much to create uh, what you're looking to create. So how do you do that? It can't be as simple as just saying, hey, guys, let's build some public infrastructure while we're at this or invest your private money into the city's infrastructure or its people. Like, what does it take? I imagine you've changed the narrative, changed systems, maybe even changed laws. Really depends on the time. You know, I was fortunate enough to be in San Francisco in a really expansionary period in its history where a lot of people wanted to be in San Francisco. There was huge investments in everything from venture capital and tech-founded startups to desirable real estate and other factors that brought people to the Bay Area and to San Francisco in particular. There was a real need to create additional housing, additional office space and resources to accommodate that demand. And so with that kind of demand coming in, we could sort of harness it and say, we welcome it, we certainly need it, but in order to do that here, we need to also accomplish additional goals. We need you to be reducing your parking standards, increasing your transit contributions, creating open space on your rooftops or at your ground floor, providing a higher percentage of affordable housing so we maintain the kind of diversity that San Francisco has become known for. It was a great time to be in a negotiated position from a leverage perspective. Let's walk through a couple of the really big projects that you worked on that people could actually see and experience today. The first one would be the $551 million renovation of the Moscone Convention Center, which if you've been to San Francisco for a conference, you're probably familiar with it. It's massive. Tell us just a little bit about the project, but more importantly, how what was the key to making funding happen for that project? Moscone Convention Center is an interesting use case because it's one of the most sought-after convention spaces in America, but it's not one of the biggest. A lot of the big ones are out on the urban fringe and have tons of parking and lots of rentable square footage, but there's not much else there. So you're there for the conference, you're there for the catering at the conference, and then you have to drive to any other position of interest. Moscone is right downtown, just south of Market, has a public park above. It's surrounded by an office, hotel, and affordable housing spaces, and you can literally walk out the door and be in downtown San Francisco. It's evolved over time in four phases, going back to the 1980s when it was named after the then-mayor George Moscone, and this was the fourth phase. And to do it, we worked with the hotel industry that recognized that something like two-thirds of their room nights came from convention goers throughout the year. They were motivated to have a modern and efficient and large enough convention to meet that demand going forward, enough so that they self-assessed an average daily room night rate that kind of decreased the further you got away from Moscone that paid for two-thirds of that $551 million cost. So we formed what was called a tourism improvement district. First, it is a very small one. We said, okay, let's test this concept. Let's do a $40, $50 million one, and we'll upgrade all of the wayfinding and the digital displays and the, the things that people see right up front, but aren't capital, which is much more expensive. And it was such a resounding success that we were able to go back to them and say, let's do a larger one, uh, half a billion dollars, expand the physical space and modernize it, take it from its 1980s, 1970s, more uh, set back from the sidewalk design right up to the curb front, more vertical like its surrounding buildings, more modern. It's designed by Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill. It's a beautiful building. And integrate it with the street grid and improve some of the surrounding pedestrian paths and architecture so that it fit better in its environment and integrated better with downtown. 
seems like a theme we're going to hit a few times in this conversation, Adam, is about mixed neighborhoods and translating that to mixed stakeholders and possible partners in these big projects. The next one I want to ask you about is the 27-acre seawall, lot 337 and Pier 48, which was converting a parking lot into a mixed-use neighborhood. This one is port property. If you've been to San Francisco and ever caught a Giants game, this was the largest surface parking lot for the ballpark. It was across McCovey Cove, where the famous splash hit home runs go into the, the bay. Partially pile-supported, just a wide-open parking lot. It was heavily utilized on game days, about 81 times a year, and was neighborhood parking and very underutilized the rest of the year. So the Giants and the Port of San Francisco and my former office in economic development worked together to say, how do we better utilize this space? The ultimate design had a structured parking garage to accommodate the same number of vehicles, recognizing that the Giants were the baseball team, along with the Oakland A's, for all of Northern California, so they drew throughout the region and then use the remaining for verticals. So there was about 2.8 million square feet of development, both office, residential, and retail, and it created a whole new neighborhood. You would go, you would take transit, or you'd bike, or you'd drive, you would park, and then you'd transit across a pedestrian pathway to the ballpark where there's food and beverage and restaurants and active street life. And that active street life lived 365 days a year. It wasn't dependent upon a ball game. So you could now go to this neighborhood and they've got uh, the first tenants will be moving into the first phase of this at late this calendar year. It'll be the new headquarters for Visa. And it'll look right down on the ballpark from the top floors. You'll be able to see the scoreboard and the game, which are also on the waterfront. The development helped improve the entire 28 acres and make it resilient for sea level rise, integrated a new street grid within that parking lot, improved the transit networks nearby and the whole site is 40% affordable. So 40% of all the units on the site will be for designated affordable units. It really created a whole new neighborhood that financially benefited both the Giants and the Port, but really had a lot of support from the neighbors because what was a surface parking lot is now a destination, a place to go to dinner, a place to get a drink, uh, a place to connect to the waterfront, a whole new several acres of parks, and really sort of redesigned that whole area. Well, I'm sure a lot of people listening think this is just a dream or maybe a once in a generation kind of opportunity in a city to create an entire neighborhood. You've been part of it a few times in San Francisco. Is it just the market in San Francisco, the desire, the private investment that made all of this possible? Or do you think there's some other things that made multiple neighborhood making projects possible in your career? I think it's a couple of things. I think San Francisco's not afraid of trying new things and leading the nation often and some of these concepts of bringing residences downtown and doing transit-oriented development and increasing affordability rates and providing active, um, not just passive, open space. But we couldn't have afforded it, obviously, without the participation of the private sector. And the private sector is driven by demand. And San Francisco has been fortunate enough to have had tremendous demand over the last 20 years. And there's a bit of a reckoning moment now as as we go through uh, the end of the pandemic and what work from home means for places, you know, downtowns across America. But San Francisco has always been a hub of talent and it's where people want to be. It's a beautiful place with a lot of amenities adjacent to some of the best universities in the United States. People want to be here. So long as that remains the case, so long as that and our infrastructure keeps up with that, it will recover and we'll be back to the kind of uh, a similar kind of negotiating environment. 
One last project I want to cover from your time working for the city and county of San Francisco is the $1 billion Golden State Warriors Event Center. It is now open. I still haven't been to a game. It's also a mixed-use development project, as we've been discussing. So what are some of your biggest takeaways from working on the first NBA arena entirely privately financed? Great partners to work with. They were obviously there to create their home. Some developers are looking for capital return and then off to the next project. But the Warriors were obviously very interested in maintaining all relationships and integrating with the neighborhood. Coming back to San Francisco, where they first started way back in the Wilt Chamberlain days. So they spent a half a century playing at the Oakland Arena in Oakland, and they were tenants there. This was an opportunity for them to own the dirt, own the building, and also realize the revenues not only from concessions, but from private events, from parking, from adjacent retail and office. Now they could make their money not just from home games and advertising rights and merchandise, but from all of the real estate and other activities on the site 365 days a year. So they were great partners. It was a great project. We started actually closer to downtown. From the city side, we were looking at How could we serve an arena when you have 18,000 people coming all at the same time and leaving all at the same time? There was a pier owned by the port where we had tried to develop during the America's Cup that was walking distance to the ferry, walking distance to the BART system, walking distance to the Muni Metro Rail, and right off of the Bay Bridge to the East Bay. It was a spectacular, iconic location that we kind of talked at the time as could be the Sydney Opera House for San Francisco. It was right on the front door of San Francisco's waterfront. It was challenging there for a number of reasons. It was on a pier, so it required federal and state involvement from everyone from the Coast Guard to the Regional Water Quality Control Board. It needed National Environmental Policy Act consideration. The time just to get through those approvals would have extended beyond what the warriors were looking for. And then the cost of improving the pier before you could go vertical was also expensive. And then it was going to be on port leased property, so they had to come to a financial term sheet with the port. They moved then to their current location, which they own, an upland location, but also on the waterfront and also a signature location. So we had to improve the Muni line there and provide connections, and they're uh, working to complete a new ferry landing on the waterfront edge. But it's a spectacular location. you got to go check it out. Everybody says, oh, but I wasn't sure I wanted them to move into the city, and they go and they have a fantastic experience. It's a beautiful, modern uh, event venue. That's a great suggestion. I'm skeptical as an Oaklander, but we'll see. What I hear in that is so many interesting themes like being willing to change when the odds are so against you or the timeline will be so long, the cost, the regulatory system, et cetera. Do you just change? And maybe when there's private investment, there's more of a willingness or an incentive to change what the plan is. I think adaptability is important. Delivering these projects is beneficial and and not delivering them is expensive. You do have to eventually make a calculus of how long is this going to take and at what cost? And is there a better, more expedient location? I mean, these decisions will last a generation. And so they're not taken lightly. It took a long time to reach that conclusion, but they could ultimately deliver it faster and at better cost and longer term ownership in their current location. And so they made that move with the city's involvement. More recently, you switched gears to something that might be a little bit more relatable nationally, which is working in a small city, the city of Livermore, which is small, but has kind of an outsized footprint in a couple of industries. Talk a little bit about your efforts there to also do infrastructure and grow the economy. After years in in San Francisco, it was clear there weren't major signature projects coming in the door. The 
we've kind of reaching the end of the business cycle. I was always curious about being in small governance and being part of an executive leadership team that addressed every issue that comes before a city. Livermore is on the smaller side at 92,000 total residents, but it punches above its weight, so to speak, in, in a number of categories. It has the oldest wine country in California. It's small, but predates Napa and Sonoma. And there are some fantastic producers there. But probably more importantly, there are about 10,000 PhDs and master's degree students at either Lawrence Livermore National Labs or Sandia National Labs, what's often called the smartest mile in America. They are doing some of the cutting-edge research on everything from climate change and biotechnology to nuclear fission and weaponry and all kinds of different things for the U.S. government. Some of those individuals or their plus ones are also doing startups. So when I was in economic development, we were trying to modernize wine country, stabilize Main Street through the pandemic, but also harness all of that talent to create new startups. So we ran a, an incubator with the national labs and some of the surrounding cities to provide a co-working space where you could do everything from mobile cannabis testing to uh, hydrogen jet fuel advanced research to advanced computing that goes into our autonomous vehicles through artificial intelligence. And there's some really fascinating stuff done by two to five to 10 people teams in a small industrial space in Livermore. And some of those efforts over the last decade plus have led to billion-dollar valuation companies that are headquartered out in the Tri-Valley and, and moving around. So it was sort of a fascinating place to be both small town, but big vision. Yeah, that is fascinating. I know you worked on an economic development strategic plan there. I'm struck by the fractal nature of this, how small things become big and need as much nurturing or space or infrastructure as big things just kind of scaled down. How important was the strategic plan to making things happen? The strategic plan was, was both a great way for me to orient to Livermore. I had been working in San Francisco, which is a different set of economic levers, but also a way to focus the council and the leadership around a couple of key economic development drivers. And for us, those became, through a series of interviews and research and experience, positioning Livermore as a place where you build a physical thing. So Livermore geographically is sort of halfway in between the venture capital, white collar kind of legal financial and software leading efforts of, of the coastal area and the highly skilled labor force that comes from the Central Valley that's doing injection molding or advanced manufacturing. Livermore was really developing and we were helping to urge in was the place where you go and make a physical product, you make a titanol stent for medical applications, you make a semiconductor chip, you create the dashboard instrumentation that goes into your Tesla. All that sort of stuff was happening in the industrial spaces in Livermore. And those were high paying jobs that could pay the standard of the quality of life in the Bay Area. We were really trying to harness some of that talent and all those resources to allow people to stay long-term in Livermore, to attract new residents to Livermore, but to kind of maintain that small town feel that it has come to cherish. Wow, sounds like a really place-based strategy that's unique to the place. Can't just copy and paste. We would often say, you don't want to be like somebody else or a lesser version of somebody else. You want to find what your best attributes are and lean into those attributes. And in a place like Livermore, which has the lion's share of the industrial footprint in the, the Tri-Valley, which is just over the hill from the Oakland side, 
and had that talent, these are the sort of opportunities that we thought would be successful going forward. And we're really growing sectors of the economy. That's interesting. Can you share some of the places people wanted Livermore to be? If you talk to folks, as we did as part of the strategic plan in Livermore, they really cherish a small town feel. There's a real Main Street USA downtown, which has great outdoor dining and bars and restaurants and a real community feel. What I found as a, a new member of that community was you'd be just as likely to find a, a guy with mud on his boots from cattle ranch or a vineyard as you would be a PhD in nuclear physics from the labs, as you would be a plumber or homemaker who's been there for 30 years, or somebody doing a startup. And they all mingle nicely downtown, and people didn't want any kind of economic development strategy that would threaten that. At the same time, it hadn't changed dramatically in decades from an infrastructure perspective, and some of those long-term residents, people who'd moved there 30 years ago to work at the labs, their kids hadn't moved back. They couldn't afford to come back to town, even though they wanted to. And we knew we needed to increase production. And we knew that they didn't want a 2,000 square foot house on the edge of town. They wanted more activation, accessibility, transit orientation. And so we worked on some specific plans that would be connected to some planned transit investments and were higher density, less maintenance. And we worked on developing the kind of jobs that we thought that they would be skilled for, interested in, and would be growing part of the economy. Let's move to what you're doing now. As someone who's known you a while, I was very excited when you were appointed the executive director of the Transbay Joint Powers Authority. Tell us what your role is and tell us what the authority is responsible for. The Transbay Joint Powers Authority owns and operates the Salesforce Transit Center. This is the Transbay terminal in the heart of downtown, what we often called the Grand Central Station of the West. It's a six-story, four-block-long building. It's the largest building by volume in all of San Francisco, and it serves eight different regional bus operators today on the third floor um, with a dedicated bus bridge to the I-80 highway over to the East Bay. We have Muni and AC Transit and Paratransit and Greyhound and Westcat Links and others operating out of the building. And then the second phase of the project that's been envisioned for 30, 40 years is to connect the existing basement to the South Bay via rails. Caltrain is the primary rail operator and transit operator between San Francisco and San Jose. And it terminates at the edge of town. I'm in an industrial warehouse district, sort of close to the ballpark and not much close to anything else. And there's been a long plan to bring it another mile and a half into the basement where you can walk to downtown and you can connect to those eight bus operators and a block away to the regional BART system. It's also by law the northern terminus of California high-speed rails. High-speed rail, as you know, is under construction in the Central Valley. And once it completes there and can get through the coastal range, it'll connect with that Caltrain right-of-way and then be able to come all the way up into um, our basement. The vision has always been to bring all the transit providers into one location where you can transfer, and then you can walk, take your bus, take different modes, get to the building, go down to the basement, and then be in Los Angeles in under three hours. I know folks have had this vision for a long time, and it's a compelling one. How do you see the vision as somebody who's worked on mixed-use neighborhoods as a neighborhood project, not just a transportation project? It's a great question. We're a transit center, but we also have a five-and-a-half-acre rooftop park that has become the destination not only for the neighborhood, but for international visitors. I enjoy walking up there at my lunch hour, and you'll hear languages around the world, and people just amazed at what is 
effectively a botanical garden 60 feet above the sidewalk and in the heart of downtown. One of my favorite statistics is the park itself is on average five degrees warmer than the sidewalk below because it's elevated up into the sunshine. It gets radiation from the steel and glass high rises around it and it's pretty well wind protected. So it's a beautiful spot for, for lunch, for a stroll, for a visit. But speaking more broadly, the Transbay program, the funding for that building came from reimagining this whole neighborhood. This neighborhood was surface parking lots, highway off ramps, low rise industrial buildings many acres of which were owned by the state. So the state gifted the Joint Powers Authority, which was created under state law, the land to leverage to build the, the building. And one of the things I'm most proud of and I think is becoming a national conversation is this neighborhood is not just a transit neighborhood and, and a transit building, but we sold off those parcels for office, for residential, for retail, and it's become a mixed-use environment that is a destination of itself. It's a whole new neighborhood in San Francisco that has that open space. That open space is activated. We had something like 620 programmed free events in the park last year. And that's yoga classes, music classes, toddler classes, bird watching classes, you name it. It's really trying to take something and meet a number of different needs throughout the year. It's not a morning and evening commute and then a dead zone. It is active throughout the day and night and serves commuters residents, workers, visitors. We've got over 100,000 square feet of retail and there it's everything from quick grab and go to sit down nice restaurants to coffee shops to tech stores all just within the building. And then we work with some of our partners through the community benefit district and our neighbors to do World Cup viewings and the 49ers playoff run and other things on a jumbotron uh, nearby. There's a, a lot of activity and you know, there's this concept of the 15-minute city where you get everything you need within 15 minutes. You can get to your residence, you can get to a grocery store, you can get your haircut, you can get, you can go to a park and recreate. I think this is the future of downtowns, San Francisco and elsewhere, to not just be a place you go nine to five, but a destination that you'd want to live in and spend your day and your weekend in as well. Oh, that's exciting. I'm curious what you think of the vehicle of the authority. Authorities usually have a single purpose or kind of a specific skill set or purpose, unlike a city where you used to work that, that has a multitude of skills and authorities. I just wonder what it's like trying to get the same work done as a more narrowly focused authority. In a small sense, we're a four block long city and unto ourselves. We have some of our own permitting authority and we lease, we activate, we operate, we maintain, we fund. But Broader, my board, the Joint Powers Authority Board, is comprised of the city and county of San Francisco and our primary operators through AC Transit, SFMTA, Muni, California High Speed Rail, and the Joint Powers Board that runs Caltrain. We're a little bit of each of them. In some ways, we're a lot of none of them. We aren't always the first invitation to a meeting of operators or uh, elected officials or other categorizations where you make uh, big decisions, but we're a little bit of, of all of them. And one of the things I've found is we often have to kind of sharpen our elbows to be in that conversation because we're critical to not only placemaking and, and the city, but operations and connectivity and mobility and capital decisions. So we need to be in those conversations and increasingly are as we work to deliver the, uh, the vision of the Transbay program. Yeah, that makes sense. So you have to get people to notice you. And those broader conversations. 
Let's talk about the big project on your plate, though. You mentioned how the authority is going to build the project that connects high-speed rail to downtown San Francisco as well as Caltrain. What's the status of this project and how does it relate to the historic federal infrastructure investments? The project was conceived, it's been discussed for a century, but it's really been conceived about 30 years ago. And it was originally one project. It was subsequently split into two. We delivered the first phase largely with those land values I referenced. Almost all of the funding to build the center I'm sitting in today were local funds. And that includes the gift of state funds for some of those off-ramps and surface parking lots that we use to pay the costs. The only thing that was not local is we did get an American Recovery and Reinvestment Act grant to pre-build the basements. We knew we weren't able to serve it with rail right away, but we also knew that retrofitting an existing building and putting a basement in after the fact would have been hugely technically complicated and expensive. Those funds were invested for future use. The second phase is, is that connection, and we're looking to our state and federal partners through a number of grants and are excited by partisan infrastructure law, which is one of the most significant investments in transit since really the Great Depression. We're fortunate to be in the pipeline for those funds under what's called the Capital Investment Grant or New Starts process. We formally entered into what's called project development a little over a year ago. My next board meeting in just, just over a week, I will seek my board's approval to authorize me to request entry into the engineering phase. Once we're in the engineering phase, we will be eligible to submit what's called a full funding grant agreement, which means we can give a huge volume worth of technical work to the Federal Transit Administration. And if they agree with the technical details, could submit a request for appropriations under the Biden administration as early as next year. That's critical to us because that's up to half the total project costs. And we have a whole range of sources from regional bridge tolls to you mentioned the half-cent sales tax for transportation and remaining land sales to cover the Delta. But we finally have a window to deliver this where we could be relocating utilities a little over a year from now and digging tunnels starting at the end of 2025. That's incredible. Thank you. <laughs> On behalf of the general public for leading this work and making progress in this bureaucracy that you just described and with a lot of uncertainties, that's really exciting to get to some actual physical changes. I know when I was working in advocacy, we were just trying to keep it alive and in people's minds and for them to really understand how transformative and essential it would be to have rail connections across the state and to San Francisco, keeping the dream alive. You're undertaking a lot of planning, fundraising, project development, but I believe you have a very small staff of your own. Is that right? The Joint Powers Authority is about 20 staff in total, and that's to operate the center and plan this mega project. The downtown rail extension, or what we're now calling the portal, is, I think, the second largest mega project in Northern California after BART to Silicon Valley. It's an enormous investment. Those 20 people are not the entire team working on this. We have a lot of what we call secunded staff, so consultants that have been working on the project for everything from engineering and design to legal to landscaping and security. The entire team that's working on Transbay work is numbers in the hundreds, but the team of the Transbay Joint Powers Authority staff is only 20 people. You have a staff of only 20 people and then a lot of contractors, it sounds like. How do you keep folks organized when you are in so many different organizations, especially when you're at the executive level? How do you know who's doing what? 
It's a good question, and it's a lot to manage. I've got a facilities director overseeing our maintenance team and our landscaping team and our uh, leasing team and everything related to operating the building. We've got a project director who is overseeing the engineering and design for the mega project, the portal or the downtown rail extension. We've got finance and admin and chief of staff and everything running kind of daily operations. Um, We've got a security director who works with local police department, Homeland Security, and our contract ambassadors to provide security throughout the center. We've sort of delegated authority. The building is large enough that we're actually physically located in three locations. We have the administrative team in one space, security is at the far end of the building, and most of our engineering and design team is in a construction trailer on the edge of the property. It is a continual, like, making sure we are working well together challenge and that we are all kind of rowing in the same direction and and working efficiently together. So I kind of see myself as a little bit of the connective tissue as the ED because everything filters up to me and I need to make sure that communications knows what engineering, knows what security, knows what facilities are doing. We're all doing the same thing as efficiently as possible. Last two questions we're asking all our guests. First, managing a major infrastructure project such as yours can obviously be a stressful ordeal. Where do you find order in the chaos? Thinking there's a couple of question, answers to that question, excuse me. They, I've always been someone who likes kind of finding patterns in things. I like to do crossword puzzles and, and other kind of games that way and try to bring that together. But if I'm challenged, there's a couple of different opportunities. One, we've got a five and a half acre rooftop park and I'll walk up there. It's like a botanical gardens and I'll stroll through and hear the the commuters and the visitors amazed at what they're walking through, which is a nice kind of quick refresh. Two, I've always found exercise for me personally as a way of kind of cleansing my mind and kind of helping flush out frustration and focus on what I want to get done that day. So I'm often up before dawn on a morning bike ride and kind of pushing myself for an hour and then come back and start the day. And that way you've kind of gotten that out of your system and can focus on what you need to do. Those are great ideas. I don't know about getting up that early, but sounds great. (laughs) The first few days are a challenge, but then you start (laughs) to get in the routine. (laughs) Absolutely. And people are counting on you to show up with a clear mind. One last question before I let you go. Is there any major infrastructure project anywhere in the world that's on your bucket list to go and see one day? There's obviously many. It's always exciting to get inspired by what's worked elsewhere and try to adapt a piece of that here in our projects. The the one that's on my near-term horizon, I'm excited to be actually planning to visit this spring, which is the world's first high-speed rail system. I want to go ride the Shinkansen from, Toyo, uh, from Tokyo to Kyoto and take my family there, not only to experience 200-mile-an-hour trains, but also because I understand that some of the best cuisine and shopping and culture and other destinations are in the stations. So they've really integrated transportation into their daily lives. And I'm excited to see what an active train station could be from a country that's invested in that for decades. Oh, that sounds like such a great idea to not just visit a project, but actually utilize the services and take advantage of what the infrastructure project enables. Excited to hear about that trip, Adam. Yeah, we'll be there in in April. We also have two teenage girls and I want to get out and about with them while they're still part of our traveling team and they're not off on their own ways. So there's a limited time left to do such things. Smart idea. Adam, that wraps up our questions, unless there's something you'd like for me to ask you. 
No, I appreciate the time. I mean, I'm always interested in learning with, from other people's experience how you get projects like this done. They're not easy, they're not quick. They take years of concerted effort. And each one is gonna be a little bit different than context specific, but we obviously learn from each other and get inspired by each other. And some of my projects over the years have elements from other successful projects around the world. We did the expansion of the convention center and there was a pedestrian connection and and we really wanted to replicate some of the successes of the High Line in New York as part of that connection. It's in no way comparable. It's a little one block long connection, but it has art plantings and other things as part of it. I'm hoping that Japan offers some similar inspiration when we look to future tenanting and activation of uh, the rail platform below us. Awesome. Thanks, Adam. Great to see you. I want to give a big thank you to Adam Vandewater for joining us today. It's amazing to see the work he's doing to lead one of the largest transit infrastructure projects in the state of California. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, I'm Ratna Amin, and this has been Infrastructure Momentum Makers, presented by Ansarada. 